You are listening to the Grace Covenant Church Audio Podcast. We have been in the book of Nehemiah for the past few weeks, and we're going to be wrapping this series up today. And, you know, the title of the study was Building a Better World. And wanted to kind of come up with a way in which to address the teaching of Nehemiah, because I know a number of us have uh, heard this teaching before, and Nehemiah has often been used to address the issues of leadership and responding to adversity and a number of different topics when you talk about this book. But today we're going to be talking about something that, quite frankly, I haven't heard a lot of teaching about. And it seems to be a chapter in Nehemiah where it's just kind of mentioned, you know, we kind of gloss over it or just kind of look at it and acknowledge it but move on. And today we're going to be talking about how we respond to the issue of poverty. And what is our responsibility in the midst of that? You know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said that the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have too much. It's whether we provide enough for those who have too little. In Proverbs 29.7 says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no concern. We have a responsibility to care for the poor. It is mandated throughout Scripture, through the Old and New Testament. It's not optional. As a believer, if you know Jesus, you have a responsibility to care and to address the concerns of the poor. You don't get a, you know, a a pass on that. We all have a part to play. It is something that we have, uh, and we have to respond to. You know, and I'm going to, I want to speak frankly. I want to speak candidly this morning. And some of you are going, oh boy, well, don't need to do that anymore. I want, I want to be able to speak with, just, I, I want to just address where we are and where we live today. You know, we live in a wonderful, beautiful, thriving community called Lake Norman. And in that, there is a lot of affluence. Now, I'm not saying that every person in this room is affluent and that every person in this room has, has money. I know better. I would not be one of those. But if you do, then praise God that God has blessed you in that way. And that those that do not, then, you know, we're here collectively as a community to respond to the needs of others and such. And grace, we're very committed to doing that. But I tell you that living in this community, we can be in a little bit of a bubble. We are very much in a middle class or either affluent area of the Charlotte, uh, of the Charlotte area. I, my wife, when I first moved here, and we, uh, you know, I remember it was one night, actually it wasn't just one night, I just kind of began to notice that we, we would uh, be in Burkdale, and there would just be a couple of restaurants that had the valet parking, and there was one that has this like circular drive where they seem to use as a parking lot on Friday and Saturday nights. And I'm looking in there going, okay, there's Porsche, there's a Bentley, there's a Ferrari, there's a, I mean, a, oh my, a Maserati, a Bugatti Capati, or whatever it is. <laughs> And, and I'm going, oh, my, I have never seen so many luxury cars in one concentrated area in my entire life. Now, it's not that I haven't lived in a metropolitan area before. I mean, I have. But I'm going, wow, this is a very affluent area of North Carolina. Going, There's a lot of money here. And as a result, what that can do is that that can be a great strength, that can be a great asset but it also can serve to a great disadvantage because we, sit, we live in a bubble. We live in a sense to going, well, yeah, we see the poor. We see them on TV or we see them, you know, they're kind of distant and far removed. But we need to acknowledge that we have that within Grace Covenant here as well. That last month, I believe we fed 37 families through Grace Feeding Grace. That there are those that can barely afford enough money to eat. 
that we have it in the midst of our own community, that we have it in the Cornelius area. We have it. It exists. But because of everything else, of all of our comforts, of everything that we have in this uh, area, we are often shielded from it, or we don't acknowledge it, or it's not really in the forefront of our mind. The Bible insists that the best test of a nation's righteousness is how it treats the poorest and most vulnerable in its midst. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 5, which is what we're going to be talking about today, I'm going to break this up and cover the bullet points, the first five bullet points that you have, and break this scripture up because I want to unpack it a little bit for you. But the thing is that I think that first we have to understand, first, the context. Now, before, in chapter 4, they were responding to the thing, uh, the, the issue that they were being threatened, that people were going to go on the attack, that they were literally carrying their weapons to the bathroom, that they were just on high alert at all times, that they weren't going anywhere because they realized that they could be attacked at any point in time. So you got that stress level of being on high alert as far as regard as far as a nation on defense. And in the midst of this, you hear people crying out saying, hey, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough food to eat. And so the complexity of that. So knowing that that's a chapter previous, and this is what we're going to in chapter 5. But I want us to understand a few things regarding the issue of poverty. A lot of us just relegate poverty to the, uh, to the issue of money. That if you're poor, it means you don't have enough money. That is not what poverty is. Poverty is bigger than that. Poverty is to have little or be without resources that the world values. It's to have little or be without resources that the world values. Poverty can be anything. It can be based upon anything. The world today values beauty. There are those of us that are incredibly impoverished <laughs> as a result of that. There are, there's a number of ways. There are people that are impoverished in the sense that they don't have skill sets. They don't have opportunities. That poverty looks so much different. It can be money. It can be a lack of marketable skills. That some are impoverished in the sense that they don't have any skill sets to bring to the table in order for them to get a decent job. There are those that are impoverished because they don't have the opportunity. They've grown up in a culture or a community or they've grown up in a place to where they don't have the opportunity. But in our mindset, and often in our middle class mindset, we kind of look and go, well, why don't you just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and go get an education and get a job and make something of yourself? And then we point back to the stories of people that came up out of the ghetto or came up out of incredibly <clears throat> uh, trying situations and they went and got a college degree or they went and started their own business and now they're, they're this wonderful success story that the nation points to and goes, this is how, you know, we all love a champion story. We all love a hero. But that is someone that had that incredible drive to change it, but also was very lucky. Not everybody has that opportunity, nor can everybody do that. And to put that expectation on everybody is incredibly unreasonable. You're talking about a complete systemic issue, a complete systemic challenge. I'm going to unpack that and talk about that. But there are people that are lacking in those things. And the Bible says that there are three causes of poverty. The first is oppression. There are those that have been oppressed, whether for whatever reason, for whatever classification, due to their ethnicity, due to, um, <clears throat> to anything, that they have been oppressed 
by our culture and our society, and that therefore has brought poverty upon them. They are denied the opportunities. They have not been given the education for marketable skills, and they are denied the, uh, the opportunity to make money. The second is calamity. Now, calamity can be famine, it can be floods, fires, tornadoes, whatever that may be, that natural disaster that comes and takes away everything that you have. It can also be a disabling injury. Those of us that we know, we've worked with people that have uh, had an accident and therefore they were not able to work and they didn't have the insurance to cover their uh, salary in the event of being disabled or whatever, uh, all the medical bills pile pile up and they were doing extremely well. Next thing you know, a terrible accident happens to them and now they're completely impoverished. That, That calamity comes upon them. But another type of calamity is this. It's the inability to make wise decisions. They're unable to make good choices because they lack insight. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Jeff, that sounds like personal responsibility to me. No. No, it's not. In fact, if they had not been given the education or the opportunity or the training or the insight to make a wise decision, that is a calamity upon them. That is not something they chose to do. I mean, kind of one example would be myself when I was one of those wise people that bought the Geo line of cars a number of years ago. You guys remember that? Yeah, some people are going, wait a minute, I was a Yugo owner too. (laughs) So I bought this Geo Metro. And, oh my gosh, that thing was nothing but a big black roller skate. It was, I can't, you know, I'm surprised I even survived. If I hit a squirrel, it would have been totaled. And what happened is that I had not been taught anything about how to buy a car. I didn't know anything about All I know is I needed a car. I was waiting tables at the time. I had to have a car to get to work. And I didn't have much of a credit. What little credit I had was terrible. And so I walk into the car lot, and this guy sees me from a mile away, and I've got sucker written on all over my head. And he, basically, I buy everything that, that I believe that in 19, when was this? This had to be in early, in the early 2000, no, it had to be further back than that. No, this had to be in the late 1990s, where I probably paid about $20,000 for that Geo Metro at that time. Because I bought the insurance, I bought the anti-rust, I bought the, you know, any, anything and everything that they had. I'm like, yep, check that off, check that off, check that off, check that off. And I paid full price, full sticker for it. Because nobody told me that you could haggle. Nobody told me that, you know, no, you don't pay what's on the sticker. You haggle the price and get them down. I didn't know that. I just thought it's like going to buy a shirt. Oh, okay, that's what it is. I'll buy it. And so I paid for that car for a long time. And, but the thing is, is that no one had taught me that. And as a result of that, it's kind of going, wow, well, it would have been great if somebody had come along and show me and kind of give me the insight to know how to, to deal with that. You know, when I married my wife and it was time to buy our first car, she was kind of sweating bullets after I told her that story. But she she trusted me. I actually made a wise decision finally. But somebody had come along with that. That's what a lot of people are needed. They need to be given the opportunity to know how to make those wise decisions. And the third way that the Bible says that we become poor is through personal moral failure where we make unwise decisions, where we gamble, or we uh, spend our money unwisely, or we just do foolish, stupid things in regards to our money, and then we reap the consequence of that. 
But we need to be able to distinguish between the three. Now, if we look at the first point here, that Nehemiah in chapter 5, 1 through 5, he says that he took the time to hear the needs of those in crisis. And the word says this. It says, about this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families. We need more food to survive. Now, a lot of us would stop right there and go, oh, you got large families. Here, let me give you some money. Here's a, here's a grocery card. And wouldn't even take the time to hear what the rest of the situation is. But Nehemiah goes on to listen and says, Others said we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said we have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we're helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. So here's what happened. There were three reasons for their situation. First of all, they had big families, which was very common in that society, very common in that culture, where you wanted to have large families because you wanted to continue on the nation to continue on the generation. Second, their problem, that they had a lack of grain, was solved by mortgaging their property. And thirdly, the farmers had to borrow money to pay the royal tax on their estates. So not only did they not have enough money to eat, they had to mortgage off their property and then pay tax on top of that as well. And then when we weren't able to pay, then they had to sell their children into slavery. And basically, Nehemiah's kind of going, wait a minute. This, isn't this what we're running from, and yet we're doing it to ourselves? We're kind of repeating that. You know, it's kind of, and what do we see that in the world today? How do we make that correlation in the world today? Well, a great example is that uh, this happens a lot with college students. That if you go through a college registration line, when you get through the registration line and you go through the bookstore and you, do, you go through your entire process, what is waiting for you at the very end of that line? Credit card companies. They are more than happy to give you an application. I'm not coming down on banks. I'm not coming down. Everybody has a personal responsibility to steward their finances wisely, and there are tools out there for us to use. However, taking advantage of knowing that they don't have any money, but yet we're going to give you a credit card anyway because we know that you're going to have all these late fees, and we're going to collect the interest, and we're going to capitalize upon all of that because that's how the money is made. Knowing and specifically targeting an area or specifically targeting someone to where you know that there are going to be complications. They're not going to be able to afford that, but yet you give it anyway. You exploit their situation. How often have we made judgments about the poor without hearing their predicament? How often have we looked at the person on the street corner or looked at someone that has been panhandling out there and assuming that every panhandler out there is uh, basically they're doing it, they're probably making more money than I do a year. Well, yeah, there's scammers everywhere, absolutely. But I don't think we can make a, blank, you know, a, a blanket judgment on everything and realize that we understand the whole situation. Do we know their story? Do we know how, how we, they got there? Is it wrong that we just assume that they're on drugs or on alcohol? I mean, yeah, we have to use wisdom. We have to use discernment. And we have to find a way to help where we don't enable those that would take advantage of the situation. However, we have to be careful that we don't callous ourselves into assuming that everybody is in that situation because we wind up not being able to help those that really need it. We have to be able to walk with a softness of heart, but yet with the wisdom and a discernment of the spirit and of our understanding. Second, he reflected on the injustice among his people. In Nehemiah 5, 6 through 7, said this, When I heard their complaints, I was very angry. 
After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. And I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. First, he assessed the situation and did not provide just simple or simplistic solutions. But that one phrase, that one word, I think that we need to hear right now, especially with everything that's going on in our society and our culture today. Nehemiah said, after thinking it over. The social justice movement in the church and in our culture is very big and very popular. I think it's a great thing. I love the fact that the younger generation is like, I don't want to hear you talk about it anymore. What are you going to do about it? They're tired of hearing words. They want to see action. And I think that is great. The danger is, is that my concern is that some of these movements are basically leaving out the gospel and just simply providing humanitarian relief. And there is a difference because the church is not only called to respond just to humanitarian needs, but it's also responsible for communicating the gospel because that's how true transformation happens. And that's how we truly deal with the issues at the core and at the heart. So we don't just respond to a nation, but to injustice. But any time that we see or hear the word injustice, especially on social media, we, if there's something that comes out and says, this has been unjust, this is wrong, then everybody, the feed just explodes, and yeah, you're right, yada, 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 rather than waiting and saying, do I have all the information? Do I have complete clarity on what's happened? Has everything come in that needs to come in? Can I make an educated unbiased decision or determination on what, what, what's going on. If not, then don't say anything at all. Wait for the data to come in before we declare injustice because sometimes we'll be kind of cursing at it's one area and saying oh, that's unjust when we have, don't have the true facts and we're missing the point completely where we're able to respond in a real righteous way, in a complete way. But we're so apt to respond rather than saying, think it over and listen. Make sure you understand the situation. Nehemiah did that. He said he heard their plight. He heard the problem and was able to create a plan to respond in a redemptive way. He responded in righteous anger. Now, 5, 7 through 11 says this. At the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? Had they nothing to say in their defense? And I pressed further, what you're doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now let's stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, vineyards and olive groves, and homes to them this very day, and repay the interest you charged when you lent them the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Now, what I love about this is a great example of leadership. Nehemiah said, yeah, you know what? I've been lending as well. If you lend to someone who cannot pay back, you're not necessarily completely helping their situation because now, they're, they're, now you're just adding another layer of debt, and Nehemiah's going right. It doesn't say that Nehemiah was part of the charging interest. But he acknowledges this, I've been lending as well. We have to understand what righteous anger is. I said, well, well, Christians aren't supposed to get angry. No, we are. Because I think I've said this before, but remember, if you don't get angry about anything, you don't love anything. If 
you know, if somebody comes up to your spouse and threatens them or disrespects them in a very harmful way, you should get angry about that because someone or something has threatened that which you love. The thing is, is that we have to go beyond the initial offense and steward, and we, we don't turn it into bitterness, we don't turn it into an unhealthy way, but we put it into a righteous, dire- a righteous direction. We have a righteous anger. And righteous anger moves beyond offense and moves toward a redemptive action. A righteous anger should motivate us toward a redemptive action. It should not allow us just to stew in offense. That is not righteous anger. Righteous anger acknowledges the offense, forgives, but yet moves forward toward a redemptive action. Nehemiah had that righteous anger in that moment. He saw the atrocities. He saw the injustice that was happening to the poor within that community. And he responded righteously. He called for reform. Nehemiah 5, 9 through 11. He didn't complain about the issue, but rather he took action. One of the challenges I have too, and I use social media a lot because that's where a lot of people are really, uh, quite honestly, a lot of people are just getting their news and their information today. They log on the Facebook feed and say, hey, what's happening today? And there you are. So it's a part of uh, a lot of people's lives on a daily basis. But what I see is that people are very passionate about a particular subject, and that's great. And from time to time, we all can get on a soapbox, and I get that. But when I see someone who is persistent and continually hounding a specific uh, subject matter, my question is, okay, well, what are you doing about it? Because if you're not doing anything about it, then all you are is a social media activist, and that is nothing. That's the worst thing that you can be. You have to be able to respond, and you have to be going, okay, how are you plugged into the community? How are you addressing this issue in your community? What organizations, where are you plugged in to where you are doing something physically in reality to address the issue in your community? If not, you need to back off. Because it's not helping anything. All it's doing is stirring up dissension and divisiveness. He was living an example of justice and mercy. Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19 says this, For the entire 12 years I was a governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, thank you. (laughs) After 20 years you think I learned how to pronounce some of these names. Neither I nor my officials drew on the official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land, and I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table, besides all the visitors from other lands. The provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And every 10 days we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim for the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Remember, oh my God, all I have done for these people and bless me for it. Basically this, he had an allowance, he had something that was allotted to him, it wasn't something he was demanding, it was something that he could have taken advantage of freely, and he said, no, the people are already burdened enough, I do not need that, I'm not going to partake of that. He showed constraint, he showed contentment, and realized that if he were to take advantage of something that was rightfully his, then it would have given, it would increase the burden upon the poor. 
He led by example. So how do we respond to the fragile and to the needy? First of all, we need to understand and embrace our responsibility to the poor. There is nothing more clear in the Bible than our responsibility to care for the poor. The Old Testament lays out this social responsibility. It was their form kind of a, of a social security, if you will. Is that What happened is that none of the farmers, they could not harvest out to the margins of the field. They had to leave the margins of the field for the poor so that they could glean from it. That every farmer, everyone had to leave a specific portion of their crop for the poor to come in and to glean. Then, every seven years, the farmers, the vineyards, the, um, the orchard workers, uh, owners, all of these people were not able, were not allowed to harvest their own crops. Every seven years, the poor came in and harvested the crops. That was a way of Israel, that was a way God established in order to care for the poor, to provide for the needs, to make sure that all the slates were wiped, that debts were released after seven years. There was that year of jubilee, that there was a point in time where that, uh, the, he's going, okay, we need to alleviate this burden, we need to cast this off, because this is unfair. So God provided that each and every time. Proverbs 10, 15 says, The wealth of the rich is their fortress. The poverty of the poor is their destruction. That right there, the fact that they are poor in itself is their destruction. What the poor do have often is taken from them. You will hear stories throughout the world, in this country and other countries, of how people, because of their poverty, their poverty because of the communities that they live in, that are taken advantage of, that gangs can come in and demand that they become part of the gang or that they work for them in some certain way, that sex trafficking happens and goes, and these are believers that are involved in this and going, well, how, how can a believer get involved in sex trafficking or all these other things in criminal activity? You should be able to resist and stand against that. But not when these gangs are coming in and beating up your family members or threatening you or, or, or extorting you. I'm going, well, wait a minute, why don't they just go to the authorities? Well, very often, sometimes the authorities are in on it. Where are they to go then? They're not given the opportunity. But yet we make this judgment here, but understanding that we're, it's, it's part of a corrupt system. How many of you remember the Haiti earthquake that happened a number of years ago? It basically decimated, that leveled that country in so many ways. It was so sick to see because just, you know, right when it happened, like the next day or so, people were coming in and taking advantage of people and just doing atrocities as, you know, a result of what was going on. But yet there were those that were coming in. The church responded in a great way. Nonprofits responded in a great way. Ministries responded in a great way. They came in to the point to where people were having to say, the government was having to say, wait, we can't take anymore. We don't have any room in the airports. We can't take any more of you guys coming in. Uh, you can help us in this way. But wow, it's just been overwhelming. And millions and millions and millions of dollars were poured into that country. And I remember talking to someone a few years ago <clears throat> that was uh, head of a large organizational uh, mission organization and uh, talking to him about Haiti because the church I was involved in was doing uh, something in Haiti and telling him about that experience. And basically he said that, yeah, we're not, we're not sending any more money to Haiti. That so much money has been sent into that country that, you know, um, you know, it should have rectified the problem beyond by now. But if you go there today, absolutely hardly anything has changed. 
There are things that haven't been rebuilt. Poverty is still just extremely prevalent. It's as though nothing ever happened. He said that there's no point in doing that because what happened is that the corrupt government takes all the money and absorbs it into itself and it never gets to the people it's supposed to reach. He said what we've determined and what we've realized that we need to do is that we need to raise up leaders and we need to start making changes within the government itself in order to alleviate the issue of poverty in that country. Because until corruption is gone, poverty is always going to exist. And that's something we need to realize as well. That I'll see these things that come up uh, every once in a while, some statistics saying that if everybody would give up three meals a week, um, then we could completely wipe out world poverty. And that's a very naive, simplistic approach, and it's completely untrue. You, we, will never wipe out poverty. Not going to happen. What did Christ say? He said, the poor you will always have with you. And that seems, well, (laughs) kind of going, well, Jeff, what are you up there talking about then? Can we just go home? No, we have a responsibility. We are able to make a difference where we are, where we can. We have to understand, but this idealistic utopian uh, thing of going, well, we can just completely wipe out world poverty, not as long as there's sin in the world, not as long as there's greed, not as long as as everybody is out for their own. Poverty is always going to exist but it does not absolve us of our responsibility to respond to the issue and to bring relief where we can and where we are able. You know, Mark Gonick, uh, he's a pastor in Baltimore. He did a case study, and I want to unpack this for you. I want you to bear with me, okay? That He did this case study on an area of town that he, uh, in Baltimore, and he kind of wanted to understand how it got to where it is. Where did it originate from? It's called a community in Baltimore called Sandtown. And he will have one understanding is it's kind of your stereotypical urban area where it's uh, impoverished, high crime rates, all of these type of things. It's just kind of the depressed area of that Baltimore community. And he kind of wanted to understand where did that come from? How, how do we address the poverty issues in that town? So he had to go all the way back to the beginning and the, uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Well, what happened was that when segregation was being um, practiced, that what happened is that the white immigrants that were coming in were on the east side of Baltimore, and they were basically working in the factory and manufacturing industry. And then on the west neighborhoods, you had the affluent white community that was living over there. And then the African Americans that were coming up from the south were basically given no choice but to live within this particular uh, circle, this particular area of Baltimore called Sandtown. And as a result, really the only opportunities that were available were the low-wage domestic workers uh, for the families in the West neighborhoods, is how it started. And so they already started out with the idea of basically, remember what the definition of poverty is, saying that you don't have anything of value to us. There's nothing that you have that is of value to the world. And that's how the foundation of that community was built. The Sandtown landlords began to shoehorn people into the... uh, So you had overcrowding. You had the density issue within that. If you understand anything about being in an overcrowded, very dense area, it has an effect on the psyche. It has an effect psychologically on that entire community because we're not created to live in such dense, populated, uh, extreme situations. And then in the 70s, the industrial and manufacturing jobs began to take a decline in Baltimore. New jobs were created in the suburbs, 
Uh, but it yet was too expensive for urban residents to live in the suburbs, and there were no transportation opportunities available to them to get to the suburbs to get these jobs. Not only that, these jobs that were being created in the suburbs required advanced degrees. So the entire community went from a manufacturing to a service and knowledge economy. In the 15 years, jobs that required only a high school diploma decreased by 45%, but jobs that required an advanced degree or a college degree increased by 56%. Because of the lack of education, because of the oppression that happened there, you had this widening of the gap and you had the widening of disparity in those communities. The lower-paying service jobs were all that were left in that area. And as a result... Of that, then the community began to become exploited. The landlords became slumlords, basically saying, all I'm going to do is just basically, you know, keep the structure standing, but you're going to pay me a rent, and it's usually going to be overpriced, and I'm not going to do anything to respond to any of the maintenance issues that you have or to keep it clean or up to code. Banks began to engage in practices called redlining. And redlining is this, is that when they refuse to give a loan or insurance to someone because they live in an area that's deemed too poor of a financial risk. This made it impossible for residents to get home loans, auto loans, whatever it may be, in order to make their life a little bit better. The crime rates increased, and healthy businesses began to get leave that community, and then what came in were the gun dealers, the check-cashing centers, the liquor stores, and the porn shops. And so there's this exploitation, and then freeways were built, which enabled people to live in the suburbs and commute. And as a result, what was happening is that people were coming into the center city of Baltimore, working and taking the money and going and spending it in these communities over here, and nothing was reaching. They were taking from one community and putting it into another without pouring back into that. Poverty is such a more complex issue. It's not something that we can respond to just simply by writing a check or giving money. We have to look at the systemic problems in which it's rooted in a lot. Of, sometimes this, a lot of this is rooted in racial discrimination or rooted in oppression or whatever that may be. And as a result, these societies have grown. These cultures have grown. And a lot of us think we're going, well, just change your mind. Come on. Get out of it. Snap out of it. Move out of that community and, you know, uh, do what you need to do and know what's right. Well, let me ask you this. If you started at one point in time, say 100 years ago, and being told that, yeah, you, we don't have anything that you have, anything you have is not of value to us. Go and live over here. And you're just completely um, depreciated as a human being and put and told to live in a specific area. And then you have the next generation and they're taught that and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And this has been built upon and that entire community begins to understand. And that's what their thinking is. And that's where their comprehension is. It's a much bigger problem. It's going, well, let me ask you this. A lot of us in this room have been raised in certain mindsets and certain things that we have to overcome that are not of God and that are a challenge to us. And let me ask you, how good are you doing with overcoming that? Are you able just to flip the switch? None of us are. But we have to address the issues of that. My wife and I, you know, and I speak from the sense of being convicted myself because my wife and I served in a church in Nashville for, gosh, probably about 16 years or so. And then we moved to Allentown, Pennsylvania, where we were on staff at an urban uh, community or church there and just had my paradigm shifted. And I began to understand just the complexities that surrounded that community. 
and how it wasn't just a simple fix and a simple way to respond to things. I had to hear the story. I had to understand the situation. I had to go beyond my own personal experience and extend myself into another culture and understand their pain as well. And until we do that, we're never going to be able to have the impact that we need to have in this community. That's why we're doing what we're doing as Grace Covenant in regards to the care center. It's not enough to have you know, something that people come here to get a handout. But we want to place ourselves in the middle of that community in order to help to bring maybe some practical skills, some education, some things that would be life-sustaining, that would be longe- have longevity to it that may address the issues within that community and to turn that around, to be a presence in that community. What happens is that so often is that we abandon and we leave and we take out of that. If you go in any urban community, and a friend of mine, he was an accountant for a a number of years, and he told me about this happening in Nashville, that within the depressed area of Nashville, and you've seen this in cities, everywhere, these little used car lots on the corners. And they may have like 20 cars in the lot, and the structure and the the lot itself communicates anything other than, hey, we're going to be here a long time. It's basically like, you know, you buy a car today, we may not be here tomorrow. And the way that that works is that, you know, they go, and usually in Nashville, it happened to be this one person that owned all those lots and made good money doing it. Because you provide a low-quality product, and yet you know you're selling to a community that probably has a poor credit rating, and as a result, they're able to charge anywhere from 8 to 12% interest on that car, and knowing they'll probably be repossessed anyway, and yet you've collected what it is you need, it, the way that we just go and to exploit those areas in that community the way in which we, we um, take and we rob from. But this is what was happening with Nehemiah. This is what was happening in that story. That There was exploitation going. They were charging interest. They knew that they couldn't pay it back. They knew they couldn't do anything. And yet they went and, go and went exploited their situation. And yet our society, our culture is built upon that. That's why I say we'll never eradicate poverty because systemically as a culture, we have a, that, that's the way that everything is built. That's the way that it's structured. But we need to know this. We know that when we're serving the poor, we are serving Jesus. He's made it very clear. When you do the least for these, when you do, when you do these things for the least of these, you are doing it for me. That we are serving Jesus in the midst of this. That his heart is with the poor. His heart are with those that, that have nothing that feel devalued. And we need to find a place to serve the needy and poor. You cannot solve the problem of poverty in a world, but everybody can do something to make a positive difference in the life of others. Now, some are probably going, well, Jeff, what do you mean? I have to give away everything that I own, that, you know, uh, that if I'm rich, that I'm not supposed to be rich? No, No, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is basically this is that we don't have to become poor, but neither are we to stay rich. What we're supposed to do is to become content. And in that contentment, we give generously. So whatever it is God has blessed us with, we have the responsibility of going, no, there's a point where we become content, and we enjoy the blessing that God has given, absolutely. But we also have a responsibility to give generously where that may be. And I'm not just talking about money. Some of you have skill sets that need to be taught. Some of you have ways of making a difference in people's lives that go beyond the dollar. 
What are you doing to contribute to that? What are you doing to respond to the issue of poverty within this community and within our area? And there are a number of uh, opportunities available. And contact Pastor Michelle. I'm sure she'll be able to connect you or her, her office, connect you with opportunities to do that or make you aware of what it is that we're doing in regards to Grace Covenant alone. But we need to be finding ways in which we just go beyond the dollar because we, the, it's beyond that. Now, we understand that I'm not saying that, you know, somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I'm hungry. Can you give me some food? No, 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 I can't do that because really your problem is more than just not you being hungry right now. It's a systemic issue, and we have to address the issues culturally in order to alleviate your true issue here. Give the person a sandwich, okay? It's a thing where, no, we need to alleviate. We need to respond to the immediate need, absolutely. We have responsibility to do that, and that's one part of what it do, we do. But it doesn't stop there. It transcends. How are we responding to the deeper-rooted issues within our community and our society? And what is your part to do that? Everybody in this room has got a part to play in that. It may be giving money, but for others it may be you've got a skill set. You've got opportunities to provide. You've got something that can be provided for another person to have a chance to get out of their situation. Albert Einstein said this, the world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. What is your part to play? And how are you going to respond? You know, it's very easy. We go after church and we go out and have lunch. And I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip because I'm preaching to myself. We go out to lunch and we get back in our comforts and the bubble that we created for ourselves, and we'll forget about it maybe tomorrow. But what I want you to do is really take this as a point of prayer. I don't want an emotional response in the moment. I want us to take this as a point of prayer and go, God, enlighten us. Show us how we're supposed to respond to this issue, not only individually, but also as a church community. The thing is, is that we cannot do this on our own. We have to do this by the power of Jesus. Only the power of God, only the Holy Spirit is going to be able to motivate us to respond in the way that we need to respond. We have to have a poverty of spirit. We have to have a brokenness in acknowledging that God, only you can do this, only you can transform my life, only you can transform my heart. Give me a heart, give me a desire for what you have a desire for. But if you are not poor in spirit, but you're middle class in spirit, and what I mean by that is that you feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work, through your efforts. You believe that the success and resources that you have are primarily due to your own industry and your own energy. That you have a self-reliance. That's in essence in what Tim Keller calls middle class and spirit. I don't need any of that. But God responds to the poor. God responds to the impoverished. God responds to the poor in spirit. And there has to be a brokenness. Some of you are living life, middle class spirit, thinking, I don't need God. I don't need anything else. I'm, I made myself. I made my business. I worked hard to get here. I got that promotion. I'm the one that made it happen. And going, no, you can think that. And certainly we're all called to work hard. But it doesn't mean that 
somehow this is all of your own doing, that God wasn't in the midst of this process, that God wasn't compassionate or merciful or generous. We have to acknowledge that God, without you, we are nothing. We have to be poor in spirit in the sense of going, God, I realize that the only value that I have, that everything that I have comes from you. It is through you. It's through your identity. It's through that connection of you. It's through acknowledging you as God and Lord and Savior that I am highly valued, highly prized. I am the apple of your eye. I am your son. I am your daughter. I am a child of the king. That's how we acknowledge that. We have to have that poverty in spirit. So what I want everyone to do, I want everyone to bow your head and close your eyes. No looking around. I want to give that opportunity this morning that I believe that there's someone here this morning that you've been fighting on your own self-reliance, your own ability to make it, and you're exhausted, you're tired, it hasn't yielded what you thought it would, that you don't have the joy, you don't have the desire, determination to go on. There's an emptiness within you. There is a void. And until you sacrifice until you cut that middle class spirit and realize that I am poor, I am without nothing. It's only through God, it's only through the power of God, it's only through me being poor in spirit that my life is going to be transformed until you acknowledge Christ as Savior and that He is Lord and you commit and you turn away and you repent of your sin and you commit to follow Him all of your days choosing only Him as your God. Until that happens, you will never know the joy and the value of eternal life. I want to make that available today. And if that is you, I just simply want you to raise your hand so that I can see it. I won't call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I want to acknowledge and agree with you this morning that you made that decision. So if there's anyone here this morning that is wanting to say, yes, I am acknowledging this morning that Christ is my Lord and Savior, would you simply raise your hand? I see that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Those that have accepted Christ this morning, this is what I want you to do. At the end, there are going to be ministry teams available. And ministry teams, as I finish praying, what I want you to do is immediately come down front. I want you to come down and talk to one of these people up front so they can give you some information and know how, so you can know how to take your first steps with Jesus. And know where, where you need to go from this point on. It's a very, very important step. Please come up front so that we have the opportunity to talk with you. And for the rest of us, I want us to pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that you are king. And Father, we ask God that you would show us, bring revelation by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, of our need, God, to be broken in spirit, to be impoverished in spirit, so that we may see our brothers and sisters, that we may see our community, Lord, as you see it, that those that are in need, that those that need a response, that those that need an opportunity, God, that those that need a training or a skill set, or those that need financial assistance, whatever it is, God, show us what our place is, show us what our part is, and how you want us to be plugged in. God, we choose to surrender our own agenda, but Lord, we choose, God, to be to engage in what it is that you're doing and through this church and in this community to respond to those, God, who are being exploited, to respond to those, God, who are impoverished and feel as though they have no hope. 
God, we give this to you, Lord, and we acknowledge this, and we ask that you not only use us as Grace Covenant, Father, but, Father, that you use us individually in our own unique way in which you created us. God, you have a specific assignment and a specific place for each and every person in this room, and we ask, God, that you bring revelation to us. In the course of this week, in the course of this next month, God, may it be something that is in the forefront of our minds and of our hearts. And God, we thank you for the blessings that you've given us, God, and show us how to steward those blessings in a wise and kingdom-minded way. And Father, we give you glory, we give you honor, we give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.